Thank you, Jan. At this time, I'd like to dismiss the children to Children's Church. You can follow Miss Sarah back over there. That would be that would be great. Uh, last week, we spent the morning basically talking about friendship and about how friendship is marked by, by two essential elements. One is constancy and the other is transparency. And the reason that that's the case is because when you're in a true friendship or an authentic friendship, it's a covenant relationship, not a contract. And, and what I mean is in contracts, we love people as means to an end. You're there to get me the product, okay? But we don't love like that. That's not how true friendships ought to be. True friendships are covenants. That is where you love the other person or relate to the other person as an end in and of themselves. Now, last week, the, the question did kind of come up concerning, okay, when it comes to friendships, okay, I know how that works horizontally, but we also have this vertical relationship with God, and the Bible does present God as our friend. So we're in covenant with God. God's our friend. Does that mean that we relate to God the same way that we relate to one another? Um, and that's kind of, that is kind of a good question. Um, we know God's different, but all of our friends are different from ourselves. You don't have any friends that are exactly like you. And some of us, we have friends that are very much unlike us. And somehow it still works out. I'm, I'm kind of curious. How many of y'all remember The Odd Couple, the series on TV? Some of us are a little bit older. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a baseline uh, storyline, tension theme that you'll see in a whole lot of comedies or dramatic series, just seeing how things can work out between people who are different sorts of friends or they've got different, you know, conflicts at work. A lot of comedy, a lot of drama happens over this understanding that as friends, we can work things out. As friends, we can meet in the middle. So is that how it works with God? God's very different from us. We're in a covenant relationship. He loves us, not as an end, not as a means to an end, but as an end in of itself. We're friends with God. God's friends with us. We just meet in the middle. Is that how it works with God? That's how it works out. We just, we meet God in the middle. Is that how it works? Okay. The slowness of the no is disconcerting. Okay. No, that's not how it works out with God at all. You know why? Because God is not a friend like all your other friends. Okay. He's a next level friend. God is the the Lord. And so in the Bible, because he is a next level friend, not an ordinary friend, we don't just meet in the middle. And that's why God can be a friend. But in the Bible, we're not, we're not chums with God. God's not my bro. Okay. Jesus isn't my sidekick or my homeboy. We're friends, but there's another dimension because God is himself a next level friend. Let me, let me press this a little bit further. How many of y'all are familiar with the term sensei? Okay. Master or teacher or master teacher. It's more of an Eastern or near Eastern kind of concept. It happens a lot around, you know, dojos and, and, uh, you know, martial arts training centers. Here's one of the senseis that we're familiar with. How many of y'all are familiar with this guy? Rex from, you know, what is it? Uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Rex, Rex Kwando. You know, you know, don't even think about it. Bow to your sensei. Bow to your sensei. You know, is that ring a bell? Okay, that's not the sensei we're talking about. Okay, we're, we're looking for a different kind of sensei, but that, that's the idea. It can go to people's head, you know, being the sensei. But there are good senseis in movie history. 
Okay, Here, here's one, uh, Mr. Miyagi, and then, you know, of Karate Kid. And, and I mean, the first service is like, have y'all not seen Karate Kid, you know? But hopefully y'all have seen it. Uh, and then, of course, there's Yoda, the sensei in all of the Star Wars series. And these are good senseis. And Mr. Miyagi is a friend to Daniel. And Yoda is a friend to Luke Skywalker. But would you say that Mr. Miyagi and Daniel-san are buds or bros? No. Is, is Yoda the, the sidekick or a bestie with, you know, Luke Skywalker? No. That's not how it works. Because while they're friends, Yoda and Mr. Miyagi, they're always the sensei, the master, the teacher. Okay, that's how it is with the Lord in the Bible. He is our friend, but he's more. And so we're not chums or buds or bros. So when we relate to God as our next level friend, there are some different parameters or boundaries that apply so that our relationship works appropriately. And the reason we're spending time on this is not just, oh, we're going to you know, say some interesting things about God in a relationship. No, if God is your next level friend, if God is a friend to you better than any other friend you'll ever have, if God is the most important friend you will ever have in your life, you want to relate to this friend appropriately. And, and so we're going to spend some time just thinking about this. Are, are there rules? Is there a way whereby we can relate to our next level friend in a true covenant friendship? I want to direct your attention to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 27. If you have your Bibles, you may want to open up there. But let me just kind of give you the background here. In Deuteronomy chapter 27... Uh, it's kind of the, the last, the beginning of the last section of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, it, which is in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, you've got Moses essentially reviewing the law with the people. Deutero, second, nomos, law. He's, going, he's reviewing the law for the people. He's on the plains of Moab, and he's preaching basically these different sermons to the people. And the reason that Moses is so concerned to review the law with the people is because Moses knows I'm not going to be around much longer. I'm going to die. I'm not going into the promised land. All you people are going into the promised land. I'm not going to be around much longer. And I want to make sure that when I'm not around any longer, you know how to have this covenant relationship with your next level friend, even when I'm not around. That's what's, what's going on here. So he's very concerned. So these verses that we're going to look at, verses 1 through 8, kind of begin to, to answer the question for us, uh, what does it look like to live in covenant with God as your next level friend? As, as you might anticipate, the, the first thing that you'll recognize is that living in covenant with God means being centered on what God says, because he's the Lord, because he's the sensei, because it's his word. He's the teacher. He's the master. Okay. But before we press into this too far, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Deuteronomy chapter 27. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep every command I am giving you today. When you cross the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, set up large stones and cover them with plaster. Write the words of this law on the stones after you cross to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. When you have crossed the Jordan, you are to set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I am commanding you today, and you are to cover them with plaster. 
Build an altar of stones there to the Lord your God. Do not use any iron tool on them. Use uncut stones to build the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings to the Lord your God on it. There you are to sacrifice fellowship offerings, eat and rejoice in the presence of the Lord your God. Write clearly all the words of the law on these plastered stones. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Okay, now let me... Let me just direct your attention to this rather unusual ceremony in, in chapter 27 where you've got all these, I, I would imagine, these really, really big guys. They're, just imagine the guys, the biggest ones that, that you can think of that kind of go over to the house of Gaines and they're using, you know, really, really good vitamins. And uh, they're from all of these different tribes and they come out there and they pick up the biggest stones that they can. And they just stack stones on top of stones and you've got this big old altar pillar. I don't even know how tall it is. It's just big. And then they plaster it over. And they plastered over with a plaster that's a white plaster. And the reason we believe this in terms of biblical backgrounds is these people have been in Egyptian exile, uh, you know, basically for 400 years. And it was the custom there to use a plaster that was white and to write on the white plaster upon these stones with a a black ink made of of soot and and gum. And so here you've got this big setup and then they write on the, the altar the words of the law. And the question is, why is God having them to do this? And the reason God's having them to do this is because it's been God's desire from the beginning as our grand sensite to hang on his every word. He wants the people to center around, to revolve around, to be grounded in, to be anchored by the word, what God says. That's how it's been from the the very beginning. And I think there's several things that are being communicated here concerning this Word of God being central. The first thing that's most obvious is the permanence of the Word of God. It's interesting that he doesn't say, just write the words in the ground where it's going to wash away or carve them into the trees where it's going to be overgrown. No, I want them to be on stone. I want there to be the stone altar, the stone column, this write it on stone. There's a permanence here. So even when the culture around, the ideas around are pressing you in a direction where God doesn't want you to go, or maybe when the cravings of your flesh are moving you in a direction where you you know you shouldn't go, here's what you do individually and corporately. You hang on to God's Word because it's the Word of the Lord that stands forever, the Bible tells us. Now, unfortunately, we do live in a time, and you know this, where people are always talking about getting centered, centering themselves, or finding their zen, uh, or, you know, being grounded. and But here God is saying, okay, I want you to be grounded, but I want you to be grounded in the Word. I want you to center yourself, but you need to center yourself on me. It's all about the permanence of the Word. And as a church, we want to always be Word-oriented. It's not, it's not personalities-oriented. We, we like our personalities around here. We have excellent teachers, but it's not about me. It's not about bread. It's not about Jonathan. It's not, not about any of our individual teachers. It's not about Sarah. It's not even about the program of Awanas or anything else. It's about the Word. And one of the reasons it has to be about the permanence of the Word is because these programs and these leaders pass away. Moses is going to die. He's not going to be around much longer. He knows that. If everything were centered around Moses, though, Moses knows as soon as he's gone, everything falls apart. But as soon as I'm gone, as soon as your parents are gone, grandparents are gone, everything doesn't fall apart. You know why? Because it's the Word. 
I was visiting with someone before the service, after the last service, and, and she basically let me know why she started visiting here. And I'm not going to get any specifics or anything, but she said she was going to a church or members of a church for a long time. And uh, and they were in an orientation class for the congregation. And the, the minister said, you know, said of the Bible, well, you know, we use it as a guideline. Like, what? Like, it, it, the Bible gives us guidelines, but it's not nothing solid here. No. No, I think that person's mistaken. The word wasn't written by the people in the dirt or on the trees. It was written on stone. God wanted be, there to be a permanence. That's one thing here. If you're going to rightly relate to your sensei, if you're going to be in a right covenant relationship with God who is your next level friend, you've got to hang on his every word. There's no debate. Sometimes we will disagree over particular interpretations, but we don't ever just dismiss the Bible as mere guidelines. No. So there's a permanence about the word, but there's another thing I think that's being communicated here, and that is you've got to relate to your sensei, to, to the Lord, your next level friend, through the word because of the reliability of the word. I want you to focus on verse 3 here. In verse 3, there's this interesting phrase. It says, as the Lord your God, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. Okay, now, I want you to highlight in your minds the word promised here because God in his promises uh, can be trusted. And the people in this moment understand that. Let me, let me give you a little bit more background here. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, these people have been brought to the same place where Abraham was some 400 years earlier when he stepped into the promised land in the first place. God calls Abraham out of Ur, steps across the Jordan River, goes into the land of promise, and it is there in this place that God says to Abraham, this is the land I'm giving you. It says here that you've got the setting here. You've got Mount Gerizim on one side and Mount Abal on the other. And in the middle between these two mountains, you've got the site of the ancient city of Shechem. Now, Shechem may not mean a whole lot to you. It really doesn't mean a whole lot to me, except for the fact that it is in Shechem that God first speaks to Abraham concerning the land of promise. It's right in that place where the people in Deuteronomy chapter 27 are standing. It's right there that God promised Abraham to your offspring, I'll give this land. Now here they are 400 years later, they've crossed over, they're standing in the same place, 400 years later, the same place where God speaks to Abraham, this is the land I'm giving you. And they can see with their own eyes, because they're eyewitnesses to this fact, God's word can be trusted. It didn't seem like it was going to come to pass, but 400 years later, sure enough, the offspring are right there back in the very same place. God's word can be trusted. His promises are true. They know this. Now, the bad thing about being on this side of the Jordan River, you know, we're on this side of eternity, is we're kind of trusting in the promises of God. But if you've had enough promises fulfilled or you look back and say, well, he fulfilled this promise and this promise and this promise, why would I not think he's going to fulfill the next promise and the next promise and the next promise? When God makes promises, they come to pass. It's just that sometimes it takes 400 years or 4,000 years or 40,000 years or however long it is. But God can be trusted. And when you have a word that you believe is reliable, here's what happens for you. You get safety, you get security, you get things settled in you. 
because it is impossible to be secure and safe and settled as long as the ground beneath your feet is continually shaking. I love the way Lewis Smees put this. He was talking about promises between people, and he said this. He said, when a woman makes a promise, she thrusts her hand into the unpredictable circumstances of tomorrow, and she creates an enclave of predictable reality. When a man makes a promise, he creates an island of certainty and a heaving ocean of uncertainty. And when you make a promise, you create a small sanctuary of trust in a jungle of unpredictability. How much more so is that true with regards to God's word? He wants his people settled and safe and secure. He wants them on an island of, of security and predictability and certainty. He's always been word-centric. So when it comes to relating to your next level friend, you relate to him through his word because it's permanent, it's reliable. And then there's another thing that's really important for us to recognize here. And that is he wants it clearly communicated. And God does clearly communicate. If we misunderstand God, it's not because God doesn't speak clearly. And, and so he wants everything to be written on these stones clearly. Let me go ahead and read this scripture one more time because I think it's really helpful. In verse 8, it says, Write clearly all the words of the law on the plastered stones. Write these words legibly where they can be understood. And that means that if you're in the medical profession and you write prescriptions, you're not really allowed to handwrite the Bible. I'm kind of kidding, but not really. They wanted to make sure that they were people with good handwriting like my wife, not bad handwriting like me because they wanted everybody to, to read it very clearly. Now, the good news is we have good, clear teaching in our time. There's some bad teaching around there, but we have good, clear teaching. You can go to podcasts 24-7. This is not the only Bible teaching, preaching church in town, okay? There's a lot of good teaching. But I want you to know how easy it is to lose that. It just takes moving from one generation or one minister to another where it says, like, no, this is the Word of God to, hey, it's just a bunch of guidelines, and all, the thing, all of a sudden, things fall apart. You know, you think, well, how, how could that ever happen where the church just got away from the Word? It did. You know, there was a time in our church's history where for centuries people would gather on Sunday mornings and they would hear the Word proclaimed in a language they didn't even understand. For centuries, people would come and they would hear the homily and they would hear the liturgy in Latin. And nobody knew Latin except for the people who were specifically trained in Latin so that they could administer the, the sacraments and give the homily. It was like going to an opera, but the music was even worse. I mean, it, it, I don't know why people continue to go, but they went. And I'm not, I'm not dogging Latin or the Latin Vulgate, but, you know... It needed to be understandable to people. And so it wasn't for centuries and centuries until it was like 1395 is the first time that the Bible, it was Wycliffe's associates, translated the Bible into English and they had to handwrite it because this is before the printing press. And, and you have to recognize that in order to handwrite the New Testament the way they were doing it, it took about two years. And so it wasn't mass produced. It'd be like at least, it was nearly a hundred years after the printing press before the next major English translation came out from Tyndale. It was in 1526. And in 1522, you had Luther translating the Bible into, you know, uh, German for his people. And then all of a sudden when people could start reading the Bible and it was getting mass produced a little bit more because of the printing press, it was like revival was sweeping across Europe because for centuries Europe was in the dark ages. And they were coming to church, but even at church, they weren't getting the Word of God because nothing was clear. But people became hungry, and then more Bibles got produced. It was uh, King Henry VIII produced this great Bible. It's not because it was so great, because it was so big. It was like 16 inches by 11 inches, the, the pages. 
and they would chain these massive Bibles to podiums. And people would come and, and have the Bible read to them. The, the Bible would be chained to the podium, so otherwise people would be stealing Bibles. This is way back before, you know, Gideon said, yo, steal the Bible, steal the Bibles. Uh, but, but now, you know, they don't steal the Bibles. And so they would chain the Bibles on these podiums, and if you couldn't read the Bible yourself, you would pay people to read it for you. And so people would just show up and have the Bible read to them. And sometimes that was so popular just to come to hear a Bible reading that cathedrals would be packed to the point where the doors of the cathedrals, you know how they used to have these big old doors that would be, you know, wide open? They, the, the, the cathedrals would be packed and people would be pushed out to the street. And there were times in London when the commerce would shut down because people were standing out in the streets and the, you couldn't have traffic going back and forth in the streets because everybody gathered together to hear God's word. I think that's a beautiful moment, but I think about that and I go, you know, I know people died in order to bring us the Bible. And I know God wants the Bible to be central in our lives individually and corporately because it's the permanent, reliable, clear word of God. And so the question I have to ask you is, okay, um, are, are you word-centric? Because these are the words of your sensei. Do you pay attention? Do you listen to his word? Do you read his word? Do you think about his word? And I don't think there's anything magical about three chapters a day or you memorize one verse every day or whatever the case is. It's not laid out for us in the scripture, but when you're a Christian who is rightly relating to your sensei, your next level friend, you're going to listen to, focus on, remember his word. That's the way it works with that friend. There's a... A second thing that's real important for us to notice here is that's not just that we focus on the word. It's that there would be a focus, if you're relating appropriately to your next level friend, you're going to focus on the friend. You're going to be focusing on the Lord himself. Okay, Where do I see this? I see this in this altar that's getting created, not just upon which the writing happens. But there's this altar of uncut stone that's being put together upon which sacrifices were to be placed and then burned. Now, if you didn't catch this, a burned sacrifice is a sacrifice that gets burned. Okay? And the burned sacrifice isn't something that you were even allowed to eat. Now, some of you, you like your steaks, you know, well done because you weren't raised right. But you'll eat it even if it's burned. Okay? They weren't allowed to eat it. It was burned and it was burned up and nobody ate it. And when people offered that burnt sacrifice, it was the best stuff. And we'll get to this in a second. Now, most of the time when we're reading through the Old Testament, you read through Genesis and go, oh, Abraham set up an altar here and put some st- pack, stacked some stones and made an altar there. We go, okay, whatever next. We don't get it. So you stacked up some stones, kept moving. Are these like, I don't know, road markers or something like that? Let me explain the importance of the altars. Because again, what's happening here in Deuteronomy chapter 27 refers back to Genesis chapter 12 because when Genesis chapter 12, when Moses comes over into the land of promise, what does he do? He sets up an altar. And he sets up an altar not just in Shechem. He does it in Ai and he does it in Hebron and he does it in Bethel. He sets up altars all over the place. You know why? Because altars were designed to draw the, the, the eyes of people heavenward toward God. Worshippers and non-worshippers alike. Okay, let me explain what I mean. Uh... Let's just talk about drawing the attention of the non-worshippers to God. That sounds kind of weird, putting all these altars up. The altars were sort of like claiming territory publicly. 
again, when you go back to Genesis chapter 12, and, and you see where uh, Abraham sets up this altar some 400 years earlier, you see that he sets up this altar at this rather famous oak, the Oak of Mora. You know what Mora means translated? It means teacher. He sets up this altar on, on, at, at, you know, near Shechem at this oak of Mora, which means teacher, because back in the day when the pagans would come together and get taught, they would be lectured to by their pagan priests, and they would meet in the grove, in the orchard, in the forest. You know, think, think um, Oregon, think Washington State. Where do the Wiccans go? Where do the, the pagans go? They go out into the forest. And if you're going to go into the forest as your sanctuary, where's the pulpit going to be? It's going to be at the biggest tree, right? That's the pulpit. That's the center stage. That's the altar. So you know what, what Abraham is doing? He's going onto the pagan territory. He's setting up this altar at the pagan place of instruction. He's setting up this icon of truth right front and center of the pagan gathering place. He's claiming the territory for the Lord, but he's also saying you need to look to Yahweh because this tree, this grove, all the territory surrounding it, it belongs to the Lord. Now, we have icons that are important to us that draw our attention towards certain things like national icons. One of my more favorite national icons is the the memorial of Iwo Jima, you know, when they're putting the, the flag up. I mean, that like actually happened. That's very, I get chills just thinking about that. And then there's the other uh, picture here. It's um, Neil Armstrong's taking a picture of Buzz Aldrin while he's posting the flag. It's, you know, putting up an altar is like posting a flag. And, and what that means is the moon belongs to America. Uh, actually, if it did belong to America, we would tax it. I don't, I don't think we have taxes coming from the moon, so we probably don't really own it. But you get the idea, okay? The altars were sort of like posting the flag, okay? This territory belongs to the Lord. Look at America. Look at, look at what we've done, that kind of thing. And these kinds of icons are important. Now, some of you, you've got them around your house, but you've got little crosses, and that's pretty cool. Some of us, we've got, like, uh, welcome mats. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord or something like that. And I was just thinking, okay, I talked about bumper stickers a week ago. and like, I don't have any stickers on my Jeep. And so I recently saw this. I said, I'm going to put that on my Jeep. Now, it's going to take about a week for it to come in. But I think that's kind of cool, Lion of the Tribe of Judah. And I recognize that if I put that on like, the side of my Jeep or something like that, I'm going to have to start driving almost the speed limit. And I can't be running over smart cars in front of me in traffic just because I can. And so it's a reminder to me, but it's also a signal to other people. This Jeep belongs to the Lord, okay? It's a reminder to other people, but it's a reminder to you. Now, specifically to those who are worshiping with regards to the burnt offering and the altars and all the rest, when the burnt offerings were on the altar, you would see the smoke, you know, rising to the Lord. And, of course, the affections of your eyes and your heart are going heavenward. But the stuff that's being offered on the altar is the best stuff, okay? We don't have time to read through Leviticus chapter 3. I know y'all really want to, but let me just summarize for you. In Leviticus chapter 3, it talks about burnt offerings, and, and again and again and again, probably like 40 times, fat, 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 fat is mentioned so many times. It's the fattest pieces. It's the, it's the, the lardiest of the lard that gets stuck on the altar and burned up before God. So they were supposed to cut the fat, that's how they worship God. 
And some of us are saying, well, is it really that big of a deal to, to burn up fat? And the reason you say that's not that big of a deal is because you grew up indoctrinated to think that animal fat is bad for you. And probably too much is. Saturated fat. Cut off, catch your saturated fat. Fat's bad. In fact, if you're going down the aisle of the grocery store and, and it says fat-free on it, you're going to buy that over the other stuff because fat-free is better than fat. Let's get rid of the fat. Back in the day, though, people love fat. You know why? Because fat tastes good. I don't know if you noticed, but it's the fat that makes the stuff taste so good. And it's not just that it tasted good. If you, unless you were like filthy rich, you didn't eat meat all the time. It was, it was vegetables and grains and, you know, maybe some birds and that kind of thing. But you didn't eat like the red meat. You weren't eating bulls and cows and all the rest unless you were filthy rich. So it was a delicacy. It was a, a, you know, a luxury to eat meat on occasion. And so these people are taking the fat and they're burning it all up and they don't get to eat any of it. But they knew fat was good. They loved fat. In fact, there were these little like like stickers that used to go on the back of camels that says, fat is where it's at. It, no, I just made that up. But, you know, even when it came to grain, literally, if the best part of the grain was called the fat of the grain, because the fat was synonymous with the best. The idea here is this. You set up this altar. You set it up at the tree of Mora. You... You offer some burnt offerings. You let everybody know the Lord is in charge. I want you to know the Lord is in charge. And in the middle of all this, I want you to give your very best and expect nothing in return. Because that's how friends relate to friends. They don't give you a gift so you can give me something back later. Which, by the way... For, you know, Staff Appreciation Week, if you give me something, I ain't giving it back to you at Christmas. That's how it works. Okay. With God, you give him the gift, and he just keeps it. The fat just gets burned up. Nobody eats it. It's like, why would you do that? Because there's nothing that focuses the mind and the heart as much as sacrifice does. And the greater the sacrifice, the greater the focus. It was a way of saying to God, God, you're... You're worthy of praise and honor and glory in a way that no one else I know is. And that's how you know when you're really in step with God as your next level friend. Okay, so, and you're happy about it. There's rejoicing in the middle of all this. You say, what? So listen, have you ever thought to yourself, I am so grateful, I am so filled with joy, I am so happy that, that I came and I hung on every word of God even though it was coming out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And I'm so happy to have taken my one day off of the week and I spent my morning watching it going up in smoke. If that's you and you're happy about it, good. Because that's how people in covenant relationship with God are. Really. And you say, well, why would you be happy about that? Well, because you're thinking about your sensei. Okay, let's, let's get back to the nature of the sensei to whom you're responding here. Uh, he's a good sensei. There's another sensei I didn't mention. This is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Do we have a picture of that? This is, I think this is a picture of Obi-Wan, you know, right before he sacrifices himself to Darth Vader. Okay. I'm glad I didn't have to explain that to all of you. Uh, anyways, so 
Luke sees all this. He beholds his sensei dying for him. And of course, Luke and everybody gets away and they are rescued by the sacrifice of their sensei. Now that he's seen what his sensei will do for him, all the more Luke remembers the words of his sensei. He remembers his sensei with gladness. And then also along the way, he basically spends the rest of his life fighting sacrificially against the evil empire. And he does it with gladness. Why? Because he knows his sensei is not like Rex from, you know, don't even think about it. This is like a good sensei, a good-hearted sensei, a true sensei, a sacrificial one. Now, okay, how much more so you and me? Why are the people so happy to be there? Because they've been delivered. God's fulfilled his promise. He's brought them out of the land of bondage. He's finally, they're now in the land of promise. And all they do is burn some fat on an altar. And here we are few thousand years later and we see the one to whom all the sacrifices pointed we see the one to whom the true story of redemption about whom the true story of redemption is all about and we see that he didn't just give up an animal and splatter its blood and lose some fat he lost his life so you remember his word and you focus on him And then gladly along the way you sacrifice. That's how you know. You're walking in right relationship with your next level friend. Because he's not a chum. He's not a bud. He's not a bro. He's not your sidekick. He's your Lord. But that doesn't mean he's not your friend. It's just that he's not a friend like any other friend you've ever had or ever will. We'll come back to this next week because there's, there's more, trust me. But let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we just want to say thank you for being our redeemer. You're a friend, but you're more that you're our redeemer. You're our deliverer. You are our master. You're our teacher. And, uh, and in the middle of all that, you are a friend still like no other we've ever had or ever will have. And so the appropriate response when we think of your word and we think of you is, of course, joy. In the sacrifice. And if there's drudgery in the sacrifice or reluctance in the sacrifice or hatred of the sacrifice, then it just makes me wonder if we've actually seen what it is that you have done for us. Because you're like Mr. Miyagi times Yoda times Obi-Wan times infinity. May, may we recognize that. May we live appropriately in light of that. And recognizing that in you we have a friend like no other, we would be really foolish to, to jump around with different senseis. We, we do appropriately make fun of the sensei in Napoleon Dynamite. What a loser that sensei is or was. But, you know, if we don't choose the right sensei, we choose the wrong ones. And there are lots of false masters, and I can I can tell from experience that, that one of the worst masters for my life is me. There is no Lord like you. 
And so maybe, just maybe, you've granted enough wisdom, and maybe, just maybe, there's the Holy Spirit is moving. And someone here would say, you know, I, I want a better Lord than me or anything else in my life. I want someone who I could follow, uh, someone who didn't just send me out to battle while sitting up on a hill, but who charged first and gave his life for me. But that's Jesus. So maybe you're just wise enough in this moment to say, Lord, I, I know that I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. It's not just that I did the wrong things. I did the wrong things knowing them to be wrong. And sometimes I did the right things, but it was all centered around me, myself, and I. And so there was selfishness or self-interest even in the motive. And I'm just I'm a broken person. And, and I'm not really fit to master me. But you are. Your word is true. It's permanent. It's reliable. It's clear. And you've sacrificed for me in a way no one else ever could or ever has. And so, God, in this moment, I want to confess my need for you to be my Lord, my master, my teacher, my savior. So I repent. I turn from my sin and selfishness. And, God, I turn to Christ as my savior and as my Lord. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for not just sending an animal for a while, but or even just losing some weight on my behalf, but giving your life for the likes of me. And so for the rest of my life, in gladness and joy, I want to serve you and know you better as my friend. In Jesus' name, amen.